Good morning. My name is Sam Andreatis. I'm coming to you as part of the Phoenixville Congregation of Ironworks here in this joint service this morning. The coronavirus crisis is upon us. According to the Department of Health uh, from Pennsylvania, number of confirmed cases just surpassed 10,000 as of noon of yesterday. Those are cases that have been tested. And of those, 136 deaths have been registered. And those numbers will go up. The numbers of those now without employment go into the millions in this country. So I think we can safely say the crisis is here. And that means we need to prepare. We need preparation. So how are we going to prepare? I don't know about you, but I'm ready. I've got this. And I just want you to know, I didn't take more than I needed. I have my toilet paper, but I didn't take more than just what I needed. And as far as respiratory protection, I just want you to know something that those people in South Korea walking around with cloth on their faces, they have nothing on me. This is what I got. Okay. I'm talking about protection here. I'm talking about preparation. Okay. You cannot defeat me, Batman. So we can do all of these things. We can take all of these measures and we can think that we're prepared. But friends, I could do all this. I still wouldn't be prepared if I don't have the most important preparation of all. The most important preparation needed in this crisis is not any of these things. They're good. But they don't really do it. And I could have these things. And if I don't have this preparation, it doesn't matter. It won't, it won't avail me anything. What is that preparation? Theological preparation. What we need, what I need, and what you need in this crisis most of all is theological preparation to undergo it. So that is what we're about here at Ironworks is trying to prepare you for that. And that is what we're going to do. Now, the way to look at this crisis is the most important thing for you when you get up in the morning. And, you know, in times past, it almost seems like people were better prepared for crises. There are times when scourges and plagues have gone um, across civilizations. And people then had no problem saying that, oh, this is a judgment from God. They were very, they were like I'm thinking of the 14, uh, 14th century. And we have a quote in your bulletin from that time period, from someone in that time period. And there was no doubt in people's mind, oh, this was a judgment from God. But if we were to say that today and say, well, let's look at the crisis that way, we would be considered quaint, right? That would be, we would be saying, oh, that's old fashioned. That's something that they used to do. And a big disaster would happen. They would say, oh, you know, it's a judgment from God. It's so presumptuous to say something like that. But I want to, I want to revisit this question, because the preparation that people have in their mindsets doesn't seem to be cutting it today. I'll tell you, I was a pastor in New York City a year after 9-11 hit uh, that city. It caused a large-scale disaster, and it actually changed uh, the fabric of the city. I know because I was there. And one thing is generally recognized is that what happened right after 9-11 was a bump in church attendance. It doesn't matter what church you were in, all different kinds of churches, people started showing up to churches. People that would never come to a church ever in a million years 
started showing up. And in New York City, this was a surprise because New York City is, I think it's safe to say, the most secular place in America. And people were coming to church and not only just initially after, but you saw in the years afterward that uh, many churches were planted in New York City. People started going to church, much more of the population in New York City. Why? Why would that be? <clears throat> and I think it was pretty obvious to me that this was, this called into question the ability of a secular worldview to deal with large-scale crisis. Okay, it's, it raises a question, it kind of forces a question, just how robust is a secular worldview that tries to disassociate God from large-scale disasters and say, oh, well, this is, I don't want to think about God at this time. How, how helpful is that for really helping people in dealing with the crisis? How accurate is it? Uh, how true is it? And what I saw is when you do not have theological preparation, there are two reactions that you'll see. And you're going to see them more and more as these numbers that I just mentioned go up. You're going to see these more and more. The first is fear. And the second is fatalism. People will become afraid. They're afraid now. Maybe you're afraid now. And there's another thing that comes in when you get up in the morning. And it's fatalism. It's feeling like I have nowhere to put this. I have nowhere to understand what's happening. And so you go into this kind of malaise, and that's why some people, you know, are just wandering around in their pajamas, eating Cheetos, uh, not able to focus, not able to go into their routine. But what I want to do this morning is help us to prepare by looking to Jesus. What we're going to be doing is continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. I see no reason to stop uh, this morning, and especially because the passage we're going to be looking at, Mark 14, is a place where Jesus sets about trying to prepare his followers for a disaster that was coming. He was actually prepping them to endure one of the most difficult to live through disasters of history, and that is the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And before this happens, a few decades before, actually, he is sitting there on the beautiful Mount of Olives. And we have a shot here of looking across in the dark, if you can just picture this, Jesus is with his disciples in the dark, looking across the valley to the beautiful temple, this magnificent structure, one of the most uh, magnificent structures of the ancient Near East, called the Temple at Jerusalem. And it wouldn't be lit up like this with the electric lights at, this, at that time, but <clears throat> it would be lit up probably with torches. And so it would be just as beautiful. So if you think of this, it's a spring night, and it's beautiful. They're looking across at this scene, and Jesus starts telling them about things that are going to happen. And he gives very practical advice, uh, but primarily he is trying to prepare them theologically to avoid the fear and fatalism that would come otherwise. And that's why he starts out warning them about false Christs. He said there were false Christs that are come. That is, false ways of looking at the situation false avenues that people will pursue for their salvation that need to be contradicted. So let's just read it now, if you would. If you're, if you're at home and uh, you're comfortable, I'm going to ask you, if you wouldn't mind to stand, I'm going to read from the Gospel of Mark. And uh, this is just a way of, of setting the scripts, up, scriptures apart for us. Uh, and I'm going to be reading, you could, you could follow along in the bulletin that we printed for you. It's uh, downloadable, or you can have it on your screen alongside there. Or you can follow along in your Bible. But I'm reading in the New King James Version, Mark uh, chapter 13, 
And I might, uh, I might skip a little bit of it because I'm going to read uh, the whole chapter here. So I might, I might skip some of it, but we're going to start in verse 1. Again, this is Mark chapter 13, Jesus' um, Olivet Sermon. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled. For such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places. And there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows or birth pangs. But watch out for yourselves. For they will deliver you up to councils. You will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must be preached to all the nations. Let me, let me skip down now to verse 15. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter and take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation such as not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now, learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and it puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Take heed, watch and pray. For you do not know when the time is. It's like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work. 
and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. Lest coming suddenly, he finds you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. And this is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please make yourselves comfortable as we look at this passage. A lot of people read this chapter and are very confused. They think, what am I reading about? Uh, Because is he talking about the end of things? Is he talking about something that's about to happen? What's going on here? And I'm going to try to take a few minutes to help us understand the passage this morning, just because it is so important for for us to understand the theological preparation that Jesus was giving his disciples and would give to us during this time. So let's take a look at this. If you're going to understand this passage, this chapter, just one thing you have to realize, first off, is that Jesus is talking about two different things. Jesus brings in a second time, a second issue, a second event. He's talking about the immediate disaster that would come upon them in their generation. And he's also talking about the end of time, the final judgment. So you wonder why he is bringing in the final judgment. When, in verse 3 and verse 4, try to keep the passage before you here as we're going through it. Why, when they're asking about the temple, because that's what they're interested in, when is the temple going to fall? When's it going to break down? Jesus brings in the end of the world. Why? Why does he do that? Two reasons. Okay. First reason is so he can distinguish those things. The second reason is so that he can tie them together. Okay, he brings in the end of the world in in answer to their question about the destruction of the temple in order to, first of all, distinguish them and then bring them together. What What do I mean by this? Well, first off, he brings it in to tell them that when the temple goes down, when Jerusalem is destroyed, it is not the end of the world. And he has to do that with them because in the disciples' mind, when the temple goes down, is the end of the world. That is is the end of all things. That would mean God is finished. Because ever since childhood, they grew up and they said, this is God's home. This is God's place. And the temple's never going to be destroyed. Not until the end of all things. The temple can never be destroyed. Especially this temple, which was just being completed uh, by Herod. And it was a fabulous, it was a fantastic temple. It was so solid. It was like, this would be the end of the world. If If the temple is destroyed, Jerusalem lies in ruins. And Jesus is trying to get it across to them. And that's what he does in the first few verses. He's telling them, no, no, they're actually separate events. They're separate things. You have the end of time, the final judgment, and you have the judgment on Jerusalem. They're separate. They're distinct events. And it might feel like the end, but it's not the end. When buildings fall down, it's not the end. That's the first reason. But second reason he brings in the end of time is to connect it to the judgment on Jerusalem. You notice in verses 1 and 2, they're walking by and they are saying to Jesus, wow, look at this temple. This is, I mean, these stones are just wonderful. And friends, they were wonderful. Actually, some of them are still left. You can go and see them even today. Enormous stones that were used to construct. I and mean, basically, Herod built up part of a mountain to make this structure. And the stones he used, some of them are the size of a bus. That is no exaggeration. They're the size of a bus, tons and tons, and they're machined into a fraction of an inch to a perfectly straight wall so that some people, I think even today, do not understand how 
Herod did this. That's why he was called Herod the Great. But he did it, and, it's, and it was just remar- it's as remarkable today as it, as it was back then. And it, just, it was just so solid to them. I mean, they were getting this message that, oh, this is going to go down. This is going to be judgment. But to them, they looked around, and times were good. Actually, you know, it wasn't so good that the Romans were there. But Judaism actually was, you know, they had this temple, and it was theirs. It was like the, you know, one of the wonders of the ancient world. And it was there. It was for Yahweh. So actually, things are looking on the up here. And they had a certain amount of power. Rome had afforded a certain amount of, certain amount of power to uh, the, the elite of Jerusalem. And so it looked like things were, you know, in some ways pretty good at this time. So they were having a hard time understanding how this was going to go down. And Jesus is trying to get across, this is, this is actually going to be a time of judgment. And it's very clear in the parallel account of Luke, for example, that he's very clear he's making it out to be the judgment. And what's it about? It's about how they have not received him. Uh, that's why he talks about verse 9. It's about persecution for my sake. You'll be hated for my sake. And so you see, he brought, the, brought in this, the final judgment first to say they're different. They're going to happen at different times, but also to say they are linked because they're both judgments. That what you're going to be experiencing in Jerusalem is actually a sign, a portent of the ultimate judgment of the whole world. He's brought them in to distinguish them, and again, once again, to tie them together, to link them together. And this is the important preparation that he wants them to have, that when they see their particular disaster, their large-scale disaster, it should remind them of the final judgment because they serve a holy God and they serve a world that is under judgment. And so when they ask these two questions, see in verse 4, you notice they ask actually two questions, two different questions. First, what's the sign First, they ask in their question, when when is this going to happen? And then the second, you see, they say, what's the sign of this? How How do we know when these things are going to happen? Jesus answers these questions in reverse order. First, he talks about the sign of these things, how they're going to know it's going to happen. And then he's going to talk about when. But because he brought in two things now, he gives four answers. First, he gives the sign of each, the sign of the fall of Jerusalem, then the sign of the end of the world. Then he gives when each of those are going to happen. When is Jerusalem going to fall? When is the time of the end going to come? So what we've done here to just help you orient yourself in your own reading is done an outline of uh, the passage just to help uh, give you a graphic. It's okay if you don't get the fine print on these slides, but it gives you a graphic of what Jesus is doing. So when you're reading, you're like, what am I reading about? You're reading to the end, these four answers to these two questions. The first, verses five through eight, are his introduction to disaster preparation. Okay? He's saying there, it's going to come the end, but it, that it is going to come disaster, but it doesn't mean it's the end yet. Okay? That's verses five through eight, the introduction to his disaster prep. And then, verses nine through 23, he gives them the sign of the end of the temple. And you can tell he's talking about local. Uh, event, a local event. There are those in Judea, verse 14, have to run. And he draws it all to a close in verse 23, talking about all these things, not those things, these things I've told you about beforehand. Then 
verses 24 through 27, he turns to the end of the world, says, let me tell you the sign of the end of the world. So he begins verse 24, but in Greek, Allah, in those days after the fall of Jerusalem, not saying how long after, there's going to be a cosmic end. And there's a separation between the two. In fact, he kind of implies that by what he says earlier, that there's going to be a gap in time between the two of these. Because you notice in verse 19, he says there are going to be other tribulations besides the ones up to this time, but there are going to be some even after this, that this is going to be worse then. So he's implying that there are other tribulations in between. And then he says, verse 24, verse 26, verse 27, these time markers, then, 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 not these times, those times. Okay, so he tells him about what it would be like when the end finally comes. That's verses 24 through 27. Then in verse 28, verses 28 through 30, he turns to the second question, when are these things going to happen? Now, he starts out, now, back to the fall of Jerusalem, as to when this is going to happen, Again, verse 30, these things, Jerusalem falling, let me tell you, it's going to be near. And he starts talking about the fig tree, right? And I, you know, the poor fig tree. I, I really feel it for the fig tree because, you know, it, what did the fig tree ever do? But Jesus keeps bringing it up as a sign of, of the fall of Jerusalem and fruitless Jerusalem. You know, the fig tree just sits there, but he, Jesus keeps, keeps harping on it. It's like, it's like a fig tree, you know? There's no fruit. You know, it's going down. You know, you know, it always becomes a sign of Jerusalem and its problems. So poor fig tree gets it again. And he says that when is this all going to happen? It's going to happen near, right? Verse 29, verse, verse 29, near, near to you. In fact, verse 30, it's going to happen within your lifetime. And all this, in fact, did happen in A.D. 70, during the horrendous siege of the Roman armies of Jerusalem. There there was a time when that came, where actually at the time, uh, some Christians were saying, don't rebel against Rome, don't rebel against Rome. The Jews did rebel against Rome. The zealots won out, and they rebelled against Rome, and Rome came down with a vengeance on them. They left the city in ruins, and they destroyed the temple. And it was awful. Just the the things he describes in that section, verse 12, betrayal and families and things awful happening, they they actually happened. Jerusalem fell. It was the end of the temple. So that was when that's going to happen. Then the last part, verses 31 through 37, he then turns the end of the world, says, as to the question of when that's going to happen, again, verse 32, that day, when is the end of the world? The answer Nobody knows. Nobody knows when that's happening. In fact, in some sense, not even me, he says, one of the strangest verses that uh, we have about the incarnate Son of God, who in some ways is limited here, I guess it's talking about his limitations in the incarnation, and not even me, the Father knows this. So there you have the outline of the chapter. It helps to understand, doesn't it, that he is actually talking about two different things, And he is both distinguishing them and also linking them together, saying one, the first judgment is going to remind you of the second. It's helpful to know that in this temporal judgment, it's not the end of the world, but it doesn't mean that it is not going to hurt. So friends, I I, I took the time to go through that and uh, we're going to have this on a recording if it was too fast uh, for you. But just to help you orient yourself, the main point though here is that Beyond their disaster in 70 AD, which was somewhat special, 
Jesus is teaching us that these temporal judgments are inevitable and they will keep coming. Do you see that in verse 7 in his introduction? Notice he says, such things must happen. You see that? Verse 7, such things must happen. And he goes about and lists a few things. And what he does, I think very deliberately, is give us examples of man-made problems like wars and what we would call natural disasters like earthquakes. And he, he lumps them all together. And so these kinds of things have to happen. They're inevitable to happen. Just like we saw in Luke chapter 13, he actually did the same thing. We were talking about that on Thursday. By the way, if you missed the live stream pastoral devotion on Thursday, you missed a lot, friends. You missed the shocking revelation that Pastor Darren Pesnell has on the side a successful modeling career. Now, who knew, right? Who knew? Yeah, but if you didn't turn in, you missed it. And now you missed it. Hello, I think you can maybe see it on Facebook. But yeah, it's a surprise, right? Darren Pesnell as model, and who knows what he's doing when he's not uh, in front of us. So there we have it. And, uh, and when we were looking at Luke 13, we saw Jesus doing the same thing. He includes these natural disasters, and he says they are portents of judgment. They are portents of the final judgments. Okay. You got you with me so far? Okay, so... The question, if we kind of get this message, if we are willing to accept what Jesus is saying, that we will experience temporal, large-scale judgments, the question you probably would be asking is why? Why? Why are periodic, judgment-bearing disasters inevitable? The answer, friends, is that any empire any civilization, any nation will eventually fall because the people therein are accumulating wrongdoing. They're building up wrongdoing. And the best that our rulers can do is stave off that judgment for a while, stave off an eventual fall of a particular culture because it will come. There will be judgments that are somewhat limited. There will also be judgments that will take a culture out, take a civilization out. Now you say, boy, that sounds depressing. Uh, what kind of a sermon is this? And if it sounds depressing to you, friends, all I have to say is just look at history. Just look at history. It's incontrovertible when I say that no nation lasts. Because even the greatest nations that we've seen have come to an end, have fallen. I mean, you look at Rome, the contributions that Rome made to government, to literature, to the, to, you know, to the invention of pizza. I mean, pizza, pizza comes out of Rome. Didn't save it. Okay. Assyria. I mean, just the, the contributions from Assyria to, the, uh, to architecture, to the way in which people study history that, that came out of Assyria at that time. Technology, their, their architecture, I mean, it was, it was tremendous. It was remarkable. Didn't save them at all. Babylon, I mean, just look at what we get about math from Babylon. Just, from math, just in the field of mathematics, ba Babylon was instrumental in our understanding. 
And I would add the understanding of the spiritual realm came out of Babylon culture, wasn't there before. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon was the greatest and biggest city in the world. And it fell. Those accomplishments, all the good things that you see going on, it didn't save them. Never mind the ancient Near East or the West. You know, you can look anywhere around the world. Look at the Incas art, you know, and the things that we get from the Incas. I mean, quinoa, like quinoa, didn't save it. Didn't save it. And I could go on and on, couldn't I? Egypt, Greece, Persia, all solid. Just like those stones of Jerusalem, all solid. All fell. And, and when these come, if you start to kind of take on this understanding, you have to also realize that God does this grievously. He brings temporal judgments upon the world grievously. He's not happy about it. You see it in Jesus when he approaches Jerusalem, right? When Jesus first approaches Jerusalem, he starts crying, right? When he comes around the bend over the Mount of Olives and, he, and he, Jerusalem comes into view first time, he starts weeping because he knows that the reception he's going to get is not the reception he should get. And it's going to bring judgment upon them. And he's, he's upset about it. And he knows that it could have been avoided if they had responded to him differently. It's a grievous thing. And even in this passage, you can see the heart of God. You know, when Jesus does something, you're seeing God's heart. Okay? Jesus shows us the Father, as he said to Philip. You're seeing the Father. You see me. So when Jesus does something, we're seeing God's heart. So in verse 17, Jesus is picturing the coming disaster, which he says is inevitable. Do you see what he does? He starts grieving over the suffering that goes on. In fact, he starts imagining what it's going to be like, how this is going to affect nursing mothers. Do you see that in verse 17? This is, this is where Jesus' mind goes, to nursing mothers. And he thinks about how it's going to be for them, and he just shudders. Or verse 20, he looks at um, how God is, seems to be waiting to try to cut short the days so that some would survive because uh, he, he doesn't enjoy the suffering. But it's going to come because if it didn't come, it would be worse if it didn't. Now, we need to read our crisis this way. I'd encourage you, if you are going to be prepared, is to understand, even though our civilization it seems so solid, just like the disciples felt, God will allow temporal judgments. And you want to, you want to be slow to draw the lines that would connect them to a particular reason because we do not have that perspective. We don't know. I mean, you think that you know what's going on in a country, but you really don't know what's going on. I mean, you just take America, 330 million people, and you say, well, I know what's going on. I know what, what the state of the people are because I listen to the news, and my news outlet is objective. You know, friends, I don't care how objective your news outlet is. You are getting a tiny slice of little narrow perspective of a well-edited highly selective group of, of events 
of circumstances that, that you are being shown. You do not know what's going on in a country. You may think that you know. You may say the large-scale currents of a culture, but you really don't know what's going on. And to think that you do is a mistake. And that's why it's such a shock sometimes where these movements come out, like the Me Too movement. As people are like, oh, I had no idea what was going on in this country. You know, of course you didn't. Because you don't know what's going on behind closed doors. You don't know what's going on. God does. So when these judgments come, even if we cannot tie them to a particular social event, maybe you can take a guess, but I would be very slow to make that kind of connection. It takes the perspective of history, and even then, very hard to do, because we don't know. Even if we can't draw those lines, we can understand that the effect of this large-scale crisis, coronavirus, is a portent of the end. It's a portent of the final judgment, and God is just to bring it. Well, so what's the message for us today? This message should settle upon us, and it's going to settle upon us differently, depending on your relationship with the Lord if you're a non-believer and you're uh, listening to me and watching me right now, what should be the message for you for this crisis? I think the message is a warning for you. It's a message to be afraid. Be afraid. Not about so much what is happening, but what it says about what will happen. And this is your chance to think about your life. This is your chance as this crisis removes idols that you have, which is what it's doing, and you're left to yourself to think. Think hard. Take this time to think hard. Because this is, you know what Jesus calls these things? He calls them birth pangs. In verse 8, in his introduction, he compares large-scale disasters to what is, in this translation, sorrows. But it really means signs of the pain of birth. Birth pangs. Now, birth pangs can be scary. When the contractions, if you're pregnant and the contractions start, that's a very scary time, right? How many of you, let me raise your hand. How many of you have been pregnant and when the contractions started, you got scared, especially if it's your first pregnancy? Raise your hands. See? Okay. I can't really see you out there in TV land. Um, so I can't really see your hands. But I know they're raised. I know they're up. Why? Because when those contractions start, what are they doing? They're telling you what is going to come, right? The contractions are reminding you about what's in store and what's going to happen to you. And it's not going to be fun. So do you realize what is happening here for you right now? If you don't know where your relationship with the Lord is, what it's about, it is that same thing. It's like those contractions starting. You know, and they usually start at 4 a.m. And you get this nudge in your, in, your, in your rib from your wife. And she says, honey, it's time. And you're like, ah, man, can't that kid go to sleep for a while? You know, why does it have to be at 4 a.m.? That's what this is for you. It's a, it's a wake-up call. It's a time for you to think about your life and say, where am I with the Lord? And it will shock you if you don't forget our culpability in all of this. You'll get shocked at times. So 
This is your chance. And I just want you to see here that, G, that God is, is arranging things so that you would have a chance to turn to him and receive forgiveness in Christ. He is doing it. Verse 10, look at, he even postpones judgment in verse 10 so that the message of Christ could go out about Christ as far as possible from Jerusalem. Do you see what God is doing there? He's, he's flattening the curve to save lives. Okay? If I could put it that way. What God is doing, verse 10, he's flattening the curve to save lives. And even those in verse 20, you know, he doesn't destroy completely so that those who would hear and could respond would be able to do so. So think about your life. Just listen to me. Take this time. Take this temporal judgment where it, it kind of wakes you up at 4 a.m. Think about your life. Think hard about your life. It is not too late for your life to be redefined. You know, I never understand that when parents, you hear parents say this sometimes, you know, well, it's too late for me, but maybe my children can be saved. You know, it is not too late for you. It is not too late. Look, God can turn the, the world upside down. Case in point. If he can do that, he can certainly turn your world right side up. He can. It's not too late. Think. That's for non-believers. If you're listening here this morning and you are a believer, this message, same message, but it settles on you and should settle on you differently. This is a sign of judgment. It means something that's coming, but it means something that you are not going to go through. You're going to undergo it differently. You might feel alarmed, but you don't have to because the real message of what's happening for you is that you are not going through the final judgment. You are not going to be responsible for the culpability of your sins. So you look at, you know, there's this phrase that Jesus uses throughout this passage, the elect, right? You notice that? It's all throughout actually both judgments. Verse 20, verse 22, verse 27. This, this, elect, this term keeps popping up, the elect. And what happens to the elect? They're gathered from the four winds. What does the elect mean? The elect means those who are chosen to pass beyond the final judgment. Those who, if you find yourself in Christ, it means is because he has chosen you to pass beyond that final judgment. So when you see these portents of judgment, you can say they should be reminding you of what you're not going to go through. That's what they're about for you. So you can get up in the morning and have a very different reminder in front of you. When you see that death toll count, and no doubt those deaths start to, start to become part of your world, if not you, then in those that you love. Even though you are, you are delivered from the final judgment through Christ, even so, you should expect to go through the ringer with the world because you are living in a world under judgment. Even as God's elect, as Jesus calls them, <clears throat> you will bear with temporal judgments that come. So what can you do? What can you do? And this, uh, if I can withdraw three practical things that Jesus says from this passage for us to do. If you are one of those who can respond to this message, there are three things that Jesus says in this passage. And we will <clears throat> we'll end with this. First, 
Number one, Jesus says, in a sense, be practical. Be practical. He expects those who are hearing this message to be on their guard. He doesn't expect a malaise here. He expects these things to heighten your perception. And so he says, verse 14, get out, get out fast. Now their judgment was a little different. They're dealing with war. We're dealing with a scourge, a pestilence. So it's a little bit different. But what he's telling them essentially is take, take means to do what you need to do to alleviate the suffering. So get out fast. Verse 15, go down. Don't even go into the house. And, you know, in their architecture, it might sound strange. It's like if you're on the roof, wouldn't you be going into the house? No, because in their, uh, a lot of their buildings, their staircase was on the outside of the building. So if you're on the roof and you see the Roman armies coming to besiege Jerusalem, don't, don't go, you got to go down, but don't go inside after you go down. Don't even pack, get out, get out of the city. The same in verse 16 there. They had these outer garments. When they went out to, they went out to work in the fields, they would start in the morning with their outer garments on because it was cold. And then as the day warmed, as they worked, they would then take off those garments and, uh, you know, they would leave them on the field, side of the field toward the city or toward the town so they could pick them up on the way back, on their way home. And Jesus is saying, don't even go back to that side of the field. If you see the, if you see the siege starting, you do not want to be anywhere around there. So be practical and get out. So what would be the equivalent of Jesus's, Jesus's advice, his instruction to us in, in, this, in our case? It would be, Cough into your elbow. Learn how to cough into your elbow, okay? Do the things that are practical for you to, um, to minimize suffering. Practice social distancing. Boost your immune system. Buy stocks, whatever it is that's practical to do in this time for yourself. Number one, be practical. Number two, go through it in such a way to prove the truth of the gospel. Disasters are there, he says, essentially, uh, in verse 9, for you to testify to me. So that's what he says in verse 9. Bear witness. Contradict the false Christs. That people are saying some crazy things right now. And you're there. You wonder, why am I going through this? You're, you're going through this to, to, cor to correct those false Christs, to contradict them. Especially these political idols that, that are being exposed here. You know, some of you, I know, you're very frustrated because you say, I, I want to do something. I'm trapped here in my house. I want to do something. I feel like I can't. Just note something. As it becomes sort of part of the culture to be socially distant at the same time, it's becoming a culturally, culturally normal for you to call people that you hardly know. Notice that? So even as the distance increases, it now is the norm. It's, it's perfectly socially acceptable for you to get a telephone call from someone that you haven't even talked to in a while, that you barely know. You notice that? You can call them. So you're really looking for something to do. You can be the one contradicting false Christs in people's lives. You can make a list in the beginning of the day. It's like these three people, these five people I'm going to call. Even if you haven't spoken to them in a long time, it's, per it's perfectly socially acceptable for you to call people and say, hello, how are you doing? So that's number two. Number two, um, Go through it in a way to prove the truth of the gospel. And number three, pray. Pray that suffering will be lessened. 
And Jesus actually tells the disciples to do this. You notice in verse 18, he actually says, pray. Even though this is a judgment from God, you know it's a judgment from God. You can beseech God that the suffering be lessened. He actually tells in verse 18, you catch that? He, ha- he tells him to pray for the weather. Pray for the weather. I mean, that, that actually can be directly, you, you can actually take that prayer, no translation needed, and use the exact same prayer today. Pray that it would be warm weather. That the, that the virus, the effects of the virus would be mitigated. It would be slowed down by warm weather. So you can pray, verse 18, exact same prayer. Pray. And he's quite definite. So you see what he's doing. He's telling us, he's, he's telling us to make a difference in the midst of the suffering. Get people out if you can. Alleviate the suffering. Trust in the God you know. And beseech him for the compassion that you know. You wonder why you are going through this? Because you're somebody who knows the compassion of God. You've experienced it. So you are the perfect one to be asking for it now. Because you know it. So friends, let us do this now. I'm going to invite the musicians to come up as uh, we respond. This happens if you let disaster remind you of what is missing. Shine now as lights in the world and the purposes of God in this time. Amen.